Greetings, friends. This is Dr. Mark Sharona, and I want to welcome you to The Edge Podcast, where all things theological, psychological, spiritual, and cultural will be explored so that you and I might understand the times and know what to do about them. Enjoy. As we prepare to share with you in this most recent podcast, I want to talk a little bit about advancing leadership in the 21st century in a way that is true to the call of God in the sacred text. In particular, I want to focus in on Moses as the paradigm for genuine prophetic apostolic leadership. Now, one of the things that I think is important is to realize that the terms apostolic and prophetic are used rather freely in the day in which we live within Pentecostal and charismatic and third wave circles. And the usage of those terms actually means different things within different tribes. Whether or not we could create a collective bin and say it means all of these I'm not sure. What I am sure of is that there are some things being said about the apostolic and the prophetic that don't seem to be faithful to what the scripture teaches and seem to add on to the scripture things that are far from what is recognized from a scriptural perspective and what historically in church history has been understood in terms of the apostolic and the prophetic. Now, let me also make note of the fact that we live in a culture that has been conditioned to ignore, diminish, or even despise history. So much so that we don't realize how the last 300 plus years has had an impact on the way we as believers think in the 21st century because of the nature of how culture is shaped by language. And the belief systems in the West um, have predominantly up until the 18th century been powerfully influenced by the Christian tradition. And yet, beginning with the dawn of what is known as modernity in the 17th century with Rene Descartes, we now begin to, with I think, therefore I am, begin to exalt human reasoning above divine inspiration. And it is there where all the critical, form critical, historical critical, Uh, redactional critical methods of interpreting scripture begin to have an impact on the way things are done. If I were to be honest, and I want to be fair, because I do think there are things we can learn from the historical critical method of interpreting scripture, but one of the things when you take away divine inspiration, uh, particularly in terms of the way it was understood until the 17th century and you are left with the historical critical method and you're looking for the historical Jesus and trying to demythologize what the text says, 
is you walk away realizing that the historical method, critical method, teaches us how not to trust the sacred text. And when I was coming up in undergraduate school, I sat at the feet of scholars that were trained in the historical critical method in theology, and their whole goal was to take students like me and deconstruct in, in our thinking the notion that we could even believe that the scriptures were the inspired word of God. Now, why such men and women feel called to a scholarship in the name of Christianity that actually denies the very Christ and the resurrection that the scripture teaches is beyond me. Nevertheless, it's a very real part of what we have had to deal with in the last number of centuries. And the church has had to wrestle through that in the Western hemisphere. And so modernity though led to great disillusionment and what would be called disenchantment. Disenchantment implying that the world really has no supernatural element in it, it's all natural, which leads to the rise of scientism, where if it cannot be explained by the scientific method and cannot be understood empirically and rationally, then it doesn't exist. And with that whole approach comes the beginning of social theory, from which we get sociology and social psychology and even psychological theory. Social theory is the beginning of the loss of history. So it's not just Christian history now, it's anything prior to modernity that is called into question. So the idea is that if it isn't recent, it isn't relevant. When in actual fact, the truth is that the more ancient it is, there's more than likely the more truth you're going to encounter in the more ancient view of reality. Now, when we look at all of that, what we want to realize is that that produced what is called in many circles disenchantment because there was a loss of transcendence. There was a loss of a sense of the supernatural. There was a loss of a sense of a creator involved in creation. And therefore, there was disenchantment. You know, I live in a city where a mouse is king. And people come to the enchanted kingdom of Disney in order to recapture something of their childhood or to bring their children here to capture something of an enchanted way of looking at reality. Well, for those of us that embrace Christ in all his fullness and the scripture indeed as inspired and authoritative, which by the way, we want to understand what does it mean when we say the scripture is authoritative, although that is a subject for another podcast. What we want to understand is that we need to see a recovery of an enchanted view of reality, that the mystery of creation needs to be recovered in the day in which we live. And it's in postmodernism where everything is being questioned, where the door has been opened for people to inquire about whether there are things that can be transcended, whether there is a transcendent realm. 
even within psychological theory, transpersonal psychology and the quest for the transcendent have become part of the forefront of the latest movements in psychological theory. It's not just cognitive theory. It's not just cognitive behavioral therapy. It's not just all the various psychodynamic theories. Now within transpersonal psychology, there are issues that are coming up that are inviting scholars to begin to integrate the realm of the spiritual with the realm of the psychological, seeing that we can't be whole without understanding that both are part of the human experience. And so postmodernism gives us a really good window on how out of touch we've become with history and how the loss of history has created a loss of the communion of the saints. Now, in the creed, in the Apostles' Creed, in the Nicene Creed, we confess in the, in the portion regarding the Holy Spirit, I believe in the communion of the saints. Now, let me just say this, the I believe when a congregation confesses the I, that is not an individualized I as it would be in secular consciousness. That is a corporate I because the body is confessing that together. So to say, I believe in the communion of the saints is to actually acknowledge the communion of the saints, um, not merely at the table of the Lord. This is about the spirit being present in the body of Christ from the very inception of the church and how the spirit has been teaching the saints from the beginning and to disconnect from history and not consider what the saints of old understood about God and how they related to God and even how they handled the scripture and how they interpreted the scripture becomes essential to how we come to the text. We tend to want to have an independent private interpretation of what we think the text says. That puts us in dangerous territory because we divorce ourselves from, I believe in the communion of the saints, because you cannot separate the sacred text from the lives of the saints who have wrestled with it for 2000 years of church history. And all of that is built on the wrestlings of the sacred text amongst ancient Israel and faithful Jewish believers. And so this loss of transcendence, this loss of there's got to be something beyond a scientific worldview is having a major impact now on what people are looking for, how they're processing what life is all about. They're asking the kind of questions, who am I? Where do I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who's going with me? And in the current culture, in the 21st century of rapid, accelerated, unprecedented change because of technology, the society and the culture we live in is encountering problems we've never known before. We're encountering things we have no name for. And because we have a culture that has disinherited itself 
from history. It has disinherited itself from Christianity and therefore has disinherited itself from the transcendent. As a result of that, secularism and scientism have now gotten in bed with polytheism. So that when Paul says there are many gods, when someone says, I don't believe in God, we have the right to ask them, which God don't you believe in? Because there are many gods, and Paul says there are many gods. And so what compromises have been made in the church, in the popular culture, to make us try to be successful and fit in instead of being a light and to be salt that stands out? And do we realize how secularized we've become? Because much of Western society has become secularized. And the question becomes, is what is purported to be truth in a secular culture credible and believable? And is it worth questioning? Well, postmodernism says everything's up for grabs. And so we need to understand that Yes, the polar ice caps are melting. Let's just use a natural phenomenon. The polar ice caps are melting. Now, maybe they have melted in previous ages in history. And some scientists would say they have, and I think that's fine. To deny that they're melting right now is to ignore the data. And so we are living in a day and a time where the globe is going through some transitions. And simply looking at a weather report by a meteorologist that says it's going to be freezing cold and then to hear the log line, where's global warming, shows a profound ignorance uh, rooted in um, the deception of advertising and conditioning to the fact that climate change and the weather report, you can't make a direct connection immediately to where's global warming. As a matter of fact, you could actually make an argument in the opposite, but we don't care to think anymore. We just buy into everything that's fed to us in terms of opinions that come across the wire. So the question becomes, how are the winds of God blowing? Because they seem to have shifted. And I wanna go back to an ancient text where Moses is pastoring the flock of his father-in-law Jephro, the priest of Midian, on the west side of the wilderness, as far as he's gotten so far from Egypt, and he comes to Horeb, the mountain of God, which is in an isolated, desolate place. And Horeb actually implies something that's desolated and seemingly isolated. And a mountain in scripture is always symbolic of a realm of authority. Ask yourself the question, why would God choose to reveal himself in an isolated, seemingly abandoned place that's desolate where no one wants to be anyway? When you begin to wrestle with those things the way the early church saints did and the way the ancient rabbinic scholars did, you begin to discover what we mean when we talk about the inspiration of Scripture and the authority of Scripture. Because when we say that we believe all Scripture is God-breathed, we need the same Spirit that breathed the actual story 
to breathe on us to experience what it is the Spirit wants us to experience. And in that way, the Scripture is authoritative. And so when we think about Moses having fled Egypt, having spent 40 years in the wilderness, having become part of Jethro's family, and having taken care of Jethro's flock, and having brought them to the west side of the wilderness to a mountain that is known as the mountain of God, obviously known as the mountain of God by the Bedouin tribes that lived in those isolated places, far removed from the culture of Egypt and the place where the people of God are held captive, the consciousness of another reality is about to dawn on a man who has been in a place where he's been digging up dead Egyptians under the feet that of his sandals, under the soles of his sandals for 40 years living with his mistakes. And yet in this isolated place, in this dry, abandoned, arid, desolate place known as Horeb, he has now come to a place where he's ready to receive a level of wisdom he has not known before. And yet he has to be brought through a process of 40 years of moving away from the familiar and away from the known so that when he has an encounter with what goes beyond what he knows, there can be a radical shift in his awareness of how and what he knows. And so when he comes to Horeb, the mountain of God, he comes into the territory of the God who reveals himself at specific times and in specific seasons, and in this case, in a specific place where authoritatively God is going to speak reveal himself and transform Moses into the deliverer he had intended and called him to be. Moses has a call from the time he's born, but he wasn't commissioned to fulfill it. And when he endeavored to fulfill it in his own strength and took matters into his own hands, the frustration that resulted led to him being in exile and a fugitive from Pharaoh for 40 years. And here he is as far away as he can be from Egypt in an isolated, lonely, desolate place. And he encounters the authority of a God who's been waiting for him to arrive at that place and at that time in his life because he's getting ready for a change of seasons. And it ironically says in the Exodus account in chapter 3 that the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. Now, this is God hiding himself because no one can see God. God is invisible. And yet God is using something in the created order. The creator is touching something in the created order and influencing it with his sacred, mysterious presence. And that presence 
in this particular setting is going to be experienced as a blazing fire coming from the midst of a common bramble bush. And Moses has been in the desert for 40 years. And this is the Sinai. He knows full well in the heat of the noonday sun, a dry bramble is going to burst into flames and be consumed in a matter of moments. What this text tells us is that when the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. The Hebrew words here, he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. Moses is staring and looking at something of a phenomena that doesn't fit his view of how reality works. And the implication is that he's looking at this thing for quite a long period of time. I've discovered something about knowing God, however little I know him and how, however little I fully can comprehend everything that he shares with me personally um, in my own daily life. This is a journey, but I've discovered something that God takes his time revealing to us things that he wants us to see that are germane to our life, our growth, and our spiritual development. God's not in a rush. Slowing down to the speed of revelation for a leader is not an option. It's essential. I can spend all my days learning the qualities of leadership. I can spend all my days studying the systems of leadership. I can spend all my days studying how to manage a team. But if I don't slow down to have encounter with the God who reveals himself in a mysterious way, sacramentally, through things that get my attention and demand my long observation of them, when I'm willing to unplug from every distraction and the tyranny of the urgent, I may not be as equipped as an apostolic or prophetic leader that I want to claim I am. And when I begin to claim apostolic leadership and prophetic leadership in the name of an American corporate franchise modeling system as the key, I am far from history. I am far from the communion of the saints. And I am revealing how much I have forgotten what secular history wanted me to forget and how much I've become just like the culture that promotes franchise models and secularized ideas of leadership theory and has very little to do, if anything, with genuine spiritual formation and the, and the bearing of the image of the glory of Christ. These are two opposing views of what genuine apostolic and prophetic leadership is all about. Now we can argue that an apostle is a wise master builder as the apostle Paul was. But the first thing we need to understand about someone who is apostolic is they're sent by a sender. And the sender doesn't send until the one being sent has been radically encountering 
the one who is doing the sending and has had a radical and fundamental shift in the way they see reality. And so here's Moses staring for quite a long time at a bush that should have been consumed within a matter of seconds, but it keeps burning without being consumed. And it says he looked, and that word look there in the Hebrew implies he's looking for quite a while, and he can't stop looking. And behold, that word behold implies the light is about to go on, where he sees that the bush is burning with fire, yet the bush is not consumed. So while we call this the burning bush, it's really the non-burning bush because it is not consumed by the fire that overshadows it. Now, that ultimately speaks to who we are and it speaks to who God's made us to be as image bearers. It speaks to the fact that it's not by might nor by power in any human agency, but it's by the Spirit. And the best we are is a common bramble bush that is to be set aflame by the fire of the Holy Spirit so that the glory is not ours but the glory of God and that people see our good works and glorify our Father who's in heaven. But what happens here is that Moses says, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight why the bush is burning and not burn, why the bush is not burned up. And it says, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to Moses from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then God reveals himself to Moses, at which point Moses hides his face because he is afraid to look at the God who is sending him, Shalyach the Old Testament word for where apostle comes from and the word apostello to send comes from. God's not going to send anybody until he's got their undivided attention and they know that all they are is a common bramble that can be aflame with his glory, that can humbly know I am sent to deliver a message of a God who wants to reveal himself as more than sufficient for every area of human experience and knows our sufferings and knows our endurances and knows our tests. Well, when it says that Moses had to turn aside, I was never aware of this until recently. My dear friend Derek Brown in the United Kingdom said to me that that word turn aside, sur, in the Hebrew, if you look it up, he said, look at the derivatives and the root, it actually, in the root meaning, means to be beheaded or cut off. And one of the things I think we need to understand, and now Derek comes from the United Kingdom, and so part of the pomp and circumstance in the United Kingdom is that the queen, and in times past, the king, has knighted various people. So um, Anthony Hopkins, the great actor, was knighted Sir Anthony Hopkins. Well, when you are knighted, you kneel down before the throne of the king or the queen, and in that bowing down and kneeling, your head is made lower than your shoulders, and the king or the queen takes the double-edged sword 
and touches the left shoulder and then crosses over the head and touches the right shoulder as the knight is bowing before the king or queen. And then they being knighted are invited to stand and the sword is entrusted then to the knight that has just been knighted. Well, listen carefully. Moses turns aside to see the glory of the king. I want to suggest to you, as Michael Bull says from Australia, that God knighted Moses in that moment. Why? Because Derek Brown is right. The word for turn aside is beheaded or to have your head cut off. So when I say to you that for, to be one who is sent by God is to have a fundamental transformation of mind, a shift in the way we see reality, God wants to deliver us from our way of seeing to see things his way. And the sword, which is a type of the cross, has to behead us. The sword has to touch both our shoulders, implying governance. And in touching both our shoulders, symbolically, it passes through our neck and cuts our neck off so that when we stand resurrected, we are then handed the sword, which is a type of God's word, which now comes out of our mouth faithfully. And that sword is entrusted to us so that we can speak of the self-revealing God in a faithful way. That we can speak of the I am that I am in a way that is faithful to the I am that I am who sent us to liberate other people to the experience of living with the one who is the I am, the one who is the I will be what I will be when you need me to be it. And so beloved, as just a thought, if you begin to think about the processes God brings us through by way of the cross in our journey to maturity as leaders. All the book knowledge in the world about how to run an organization pales in light of encounters with God where he brings us to a place of drawing us away from everything that we think life and leadership are about and in the isolation of that processing, shifts the way we see reality by causing us to see the mystery of supernature and nature mingling together sacramentally in our lives, much like a bramble bush aflame with the glory of God. So that in knowing and perceiving however dimly we can, the invisible God who reveals himself in Christ, we can then speak of Christ in a way that reveals to others these men and women have been with Jesus. I've given you some things to think about historically, culturally. I've covered a lot of ground in a little bit of time. I look forward to our next exchange. Feel free to give me feedback. I perhaps raised more questions than I answered. That was intentional. God bless.
group Chicago was one of the big band sounds that I was profoundly attracted to when I was in high school and college. To this day, they're still one of my favorite groups. But back in the day, they wrote a song called Where Do We Go From Here? Every day just gets a little shorter, don't you think? Take a look around you and you'll see just what I mean. People got to come together, not just out of fear. Where do we go? Where do we go? Where do we go from here? Try to find a better place, but soon it's all the same. What once you thought was a paradise is not just what it seems. The more I look around, I find the more I have to fear. Where do we go? Where do we go? Where do we go from here? I know it's hard for you to do. Change your way of life. I know it's hard for you to do. The world is full of people dying to be free. So if you don't mind, my friend, there's no life for you. There's no world for me. Let's all get together soon before it's too late. Forget about the past and let your feelings fade away. If you do, I'm sure you'll see the end is not yet near. Where do we go? Where do we go? Where do we go from here? The lyrics that Peter Cetera wrote capture the sense of frustration and the sense of meaninglessness that often is a part of where we are, even in postmodern culture. The 19th and the 20th centuries were dominated by Enlightenment thinking that was birthed in the 17th century by René Descartes who espoused the belief, I think, therefore I am, cogito ergo sum, in Latin, I think, therefore I am, rationalism. There are a lot of isms that have become in vogue in the last 300 years. There is uh, a whole litany of them that we don't realize have impacted the way we think, the way we act. There's things like relativism, there's things like pragmatism and rationalism and empiricism, idealism, objectivism, subjectivism, perspectivalism, positivism. And I have come to believe that for today, when Paul speaks of the doctrines of devils or the doctrines of demons, many of the isms could fit in there if we only realize the presuppositions that lie behind many of the argumentations for any of those belief systems and those philosophies about how life is. And yet, the 300 years of the Enlightenment led to profound disenchantment. I think, therefore, I am got us in trouble. Because we're more than our thoughts, and yet I think, therefore, I am reduced everything to a rational explanation of how life is what it is. We have been dominated for 300 years by a narrative of rationalism. And the fact is, at that point, if all we are is rational creatures, then how different are we than the beasts of the earth? How different are we from cows or from pigs or from giraffes? We're, we're essentially no different. We're just another species. And yet, being a person, being a person has not been defined well by secularists because personhood 
is a theological category. We can't know personhood without knowing God. The one God who is three, the three who are one, the one God himself is three persons within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. And God has given us all internally what James Houston called an instinctual need for a relational life. We have instinctually a need for a relational life. We are on the journey to becoming persons. Now, I had to study in my graduate work in psychology the work of Rollo May, one of the fathers of existential psychology in America, Abraham Maslow, one of the fathers of the human potential movement in existential psychology, and Carl Rogers, uh, again, one of the fathers in behavioral therapy. And Carl Rogers wrote about personhood and the importance of what it means to be listened to and what unconditional positive regard is purely from a secular perspective. Rollo May, Carl Rogers, and Abraham Maslow had some profound things to say in the world of therapeutic consciousness. And yet all of them said them in many ways, having rejected their upbringing, either in a Jewish Orthodox background or an evangelical Christian background. Rollo May had been a Presbyterian pastor and became very frustrated with where things were and how ineffectual he felt his theology was to help people become fully actualized or what now we use that term now. He wouldn't have used that terminology. I'm using that terminology. Carl Rogers grew up in an evangelical home where, in a very real sense in his life, he was a child who was seen but not heard. And his father was a very wealthy businessman who refused to allow Charles on the weekends. They lived uh, While they lived in Chicago on the weekends, he was out in farm country because his father refused to allow him to associate with other young people that were his age because he was trying to preserve him from being... Um, impure and from being defiled. His, his evangelicalism was a form of legalism and a refined Phariseeism. And Carl spent most of his time growing up when on those weekends with a book in his room with the door shut. Very little encounter with his father. And when his father demanded that he become a, a, a pastor, a theologian, he chose to go to school at New York Theological Seminary, which is a very progressive school, far from evangelical. And he studied for a year only to prove he didn't want to be a theologian and chose a school that was the exact opposite of the evangelical heritage he was raised in. And then he left that and obviously became a major voice in, in what is called the third force in psychology in the 20th century in the human potential movement and talked about personhood. And one of Carl Rogers' approaches in psychology, which is tied to unconditional positive regard, was being a good listener. Now, we may have profound disagreements theologically with therapeutic consciousness in relationship to human potential. Why do I say that? 
I say that not because I don't think there is a place for therapeutic consciousness. I say that because I, I am persuaded that the fall brought about an attempt by humanity to become actualized without the actualizer, capital A, himself. When the story tells us that the woman was offered to eat of the fruit of a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that she and her husband might become gods, knowing good and evil, that they would be equal to God. We oftentimes fail to realize that much of the philosophies of men, much of the philosophies that are that are tied to cultural anthropology, the way we look at human beings, are all tied to being self-made, this ability in our own efforts to reach a capacity for the fullness of our potential. And, and yet we also know theologically from a scriptural perspective that apart from a relationship with God, we can never become all we were intended to be. And so finding the balance between a healthy sense of therapeutic consciousness and a healthy awareness of personhood in relationship to the God who is three persons, who in those three persons, one of them became fully and truly human. And it's in his image and likeness that we are made. And that within the being of God, within the being of the Father, Son, and Spirit is this communal relationship that is an exchange of endless love because God is love. We discover that personhood is possible. And that even though we are yet not fully redeemed, we are on the journey to becoming fully human persons. We are on the journey to becoming fully alive. We will not be fully there until the consummation of the kingdom, when we are fully released from the presence of sin, though we have been redeemed from its power, and when we are given our glorified bodies, at that point we will be truly human, even as Jesus in the Nicene Creed is declared to be truly human. Now, when we think about therapeutic consciousness, we realize that the question becomes, can I be all that I can be? Well, I do believe we can be all that we can be. I just know that that's impossible apart from a relationship with the God who made us to be who he called us to be. And his son, the incarnation himself, the God-man, says that apart from him, we can do nothing. Now, we can relegate that simply to the mission of the gospel and what we do in terms of sharing Christ and the preaching of the gospel. Well, we can realize if we have an incarnational worldview that God the Father created through Christ the entire world out of love. 
And God made us in his image and likeness that we might be fruitful. And that in our fruitfulness, we might see a multiplication of that. And that we might fill the earth with that fruitful abundance that reveals God's goodness, God's grace, God's glory, God's amazing creativity. Because out of his love, he creates. And out of that loving creation, he brings us to full expression and looks for us to express our potential. When God brings the beasts of the field before Adam and is inviting Adam to name them, God is looking to realize within Adam a potential he has placed within him. So when Abraham Maslow speaks of self-actualization, I think there are some profound things that we can glean from Maslow's hierarchy of needs. What I think we need to remember is that self-actualization is not possible simply by personal egocentric determination. That I cannot know myself by myself biblically. I can only know myself in relationship to the one who made me in his image and in his likeness. And so, for example, when we think about freedom in the current culture, in the vernacular of the culture, we think of freedom as my freedom to choose to do whatever I want to do. And yet, is that what freedom is from a biblical perspective or from a perspective of the triune God? Is that what freedom is? Because Jesus says that if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. So somehow freedom is inseparable from a work that the Son does with us, in us, and through us. That freedom isn't about, I get to choose whatever I want. Freedom is about knowing experientially the truth. And the truth, as it relates to God, is personal. God is personality. God is three persons in the one Godhead. Jesus is the truth. The Father is the truth. The Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of truth. For a believer, truth is not merely propositional. Truth is personal. So that if the Son makes us free, and by the way, we want to think about that progressively, not instantaneously. If you're honest with yourself, you will discover that there are still areas where you resist truth in your life. As a matter of fact, in every area where you resist truth, your resistance is the greatest when you are confronted by truth himself. The Lord is still at work bringing us to a place of being conformed 
into his image and into his likeness by his spirit. And he does that through the work of the cross on a daily basis because our life is cross-shaped. So freedom is my ability to be perfected by the influence of the Son of God on an ongoing basis. It is not my freedom to choose whatever I want. And the ironic thing is when you think or I think my freedom to choose makes me free, ask any addict if their freedom to choose makes them free. Ask any person that's hooked on drugs or hooked on alcohol or hooked on pornography if their power to choose is as free as some want to think it is or some espouse it to be. Whatever you choose, you become addicted to or enslaved to. Scripture makes it really clear. It was the great reformer Martin Luther that wrote that treatise, The Bondage of the Will. We'd like to think we have a totally free will. However, our wills are influenced by a whole lot more than we are caring to admit and are even fully conscious of at any given moment in time. But that's a, that's a subject matter for another podcast. But if the sun is going to make us free, we can know that in our heads. And yet, how actual is that in our life? Do we really find that to be true in our daily life? If the sun makes you free, ask yourself this question. How slow am I to anger? How quick am I to give a tongue lashing to someone? In a world where whatever we want and whatever we think is right, cultural relativism, is the way morality goes, I can guarantee you that we justify more anger, more hatred, and more division than we have ever seen in the Western world. None of that is freedom. All of that is enslavement. I think it was J.I. Packer back at the turn of the millennium who said, the Christianity in America is 2,000 miles wide and half an inch thick. We are living in a post-Christian era and we are watching how much we have lost our voice in the culture. And I personally believe that's a good thing because I think evangelicalism has some major areas where it needs reforming. And uh, we are in a place where we are seeing marriages fail and all sorts of boundaries collapsing in relationships. And we are not making a significant impact on the culture because in all too many ways we're trying to fit in instead of stand out. Now, we are also in an era where rationalism has been challenged, and we've got at least three generations alive now on the planet that have been disenchanted with the grand rational narrative and are now looking for something called transcendence. They're now looking for some philosophy of life 
that transcends rationalism and realism. And we want to begin to discover that the opportunity for sharing the life of the triune God is perhaps more optimal now than we realize. Because in an era of disenchantment, people are looking to be enchanted all over again. And I'm using those terms philosophically, not in terms of, of a Disney-esque witchcraft enchantment. I'm using them philosophically the way they'd be used in academia. People want to know there's a sense of transcendence in the pre-modern world. The world that predates the Enlightenment era, the world that predates Rene Descartes, I think, therefore I am. Whether one was a believer or a non-believer, everyone believed in God, though they did not surrender to God. They all believed in an enchanted world. They believed in a world where there was more mystery to the world than there was explanation. But with the birth of rationalism also came the birth of scientism and empiricism and, and perspectivalism and all the isms, the scientific method, cause and effect. Ironically, the scientific method that espouses cause and effect now has within it a group of quantum scientists that in studying things at a quantum level, they have discovered that there is not a cause for every effect, that some things just happen without a cause, that an electron can be in two places at the same time. All of those things are shattering paradigms that Isaac Newton, from a mechanical perspective, thought he had figured out in terms of how God caused the world to work. And we all too often have thought of God as this watchmaker who made the watch and then just let it go and let it be on its own. No, but the creator and the creation are intimately related. And there are mysteries to reality that defy logical explanation and lead us to awe and to wonder that we might fall and worship the one who made us in his image and likeness. And so when we begin to think about actualization, the question becomes, can I become all I was intended to become if I am divorced from the one who made me to become a partaker of his nature? and to fill the earth with his glory. Can I become self-actualized without the actualizer himself? Can I realize my potential without his ability at work within me? As a matter of fact, when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount speaks to that multitude and pronounces them blessed if they are mourning and blessed if they are persecuted and blessed if they are seeking to make peace only to find out that as peacemakers it's a bloody enterprise because conflict resolution is painful. Is it possible 
that when Jesus says to them, you are the light of the world, knowing these are broken, fallen human beings, and yet in his love, he has come down from heaven to embody what true personhood means, so that as they discover around him that he evokes a response of belief and trust and persuasion that he is able, that their potential can be realized, that they can become fully human and fully alive. So when Peter Cetera raises the question, where do we go? Where do we go? Where do we go from here? Let's all get together soon before it's too late. Forget about the past. Let your feelings fade away. If you do, I'm sure you'll see the end is not yet near. Now, all the people that think we're living in the apocalyptic age have a very short view of history and are really more driven by fear than they are by faith. And so when Carl Rogers sits in that room as a child, not able to build relationships because his father is trying to protect him from that big, bad old world because Jesus is coming back any minute and the world is going to hell in a handbasket and you don't want to be defiled by other people. Well, you know something? I don't need other people to defile me. I have enough in my head to defile myself. But imagine a young boy who simply wants to be seen and wants to be heard. But what represents the image of God to him is a system and not a person who can realize, help him realize his potential. Of course, you're going to walk away from evangelicalism because it is a misrepresentation of the incarnation. It is a misrepresentation of the very purpose of the God who is love. Father, Son, and Spirit. The Son loves the Father. The Father loves the Son. The Spirit is the bond of love, and He exchanges that love continually in that endless dance of love that some uh, describe in, in theology as an endless dance. Others describe it as a participation. Paul calls it a participation or a koinonia that we get invited into. But the fact is, imagine growing up where you were imposed on in terms of a system where it was all about moralism and rules and regulations. And all you heard about Jesus was embodied in people that never wanted to listen to you, never wanted to heal you, hear you, never wanted to uh, allow you to interact with other people. But however wrong their motives were, thought they were doing the right thing for you, and you grew up and realized, I don't want this. I want people to see me for who I am, hear me and hear what I say, touch me, and, you know, we have that, that expression in the common culture, do you feel me? Well, the pinball wizard, Tommy, the deaf, dumb, and blind kid from the rock opera, Tommy, sings that powerful song at the end of the opera, see me, feel me, touch me, heal me. And that's the cry of the human heart. 
So Carl Rogers' whole approach therapeutically to help unlock people's potential as a therapist was to simply sit and not prescribe what the person that was troubled needed to hear, but simply listen. It was called the non-directive approach. And all Carl was doing was being a powerful, active listener to the pain and the struggles of the people that wanted to be seen, felt, and heard. Because at the core of their being, they were asking themselves, who am I? I don't know who I am apart from other people. God himself reveals to us that it's not good for us to be alone. We can't know ourselves by ourselves. It was secular anthropologist Gregory Bateson who said it takes two to know one. He's simply paraphrasing what God says in Genesis in the original account. It is not good for man to be alone. It's not good for man to be alone because you cannot know yourself by yourself. I can't get to the future without knowing who I am, and I can't know who I am apart from others mirroring back for me that I, too, have value, that I, too, am a human being on a journey to becoming fully human. Yes, Jesus came to deliver us from sin, and yes, Jesus also came to heal us so that we might become the persons we were intended to become, so that we could answer the question, where do we go? Where do we go? Where do we go from here? There is something in us, in the day in which we live. The critical issue of our day is once again, who am I? Where have I come from? Where am I going? Who's going with me? And how do we get there? Well, the good news is we are sons and daughters of a God who made us in his image and likeness, who wants to deliver us from our tendency to rebel and revolt and conquer us by his love because to be convicted by the Holy Spirit of our sin is not to be beaten up and tortured as if we're dirty, rotten scoundrels, but to be conquered by the love of a father who never gives up on his children and who is ever seeking them out. Love does not destroy. Love redeems, love heals, love restores, love creates, love renews, love refreshes, love releases, love influences, love brings us progressively into freedom. And guess what love does that Carl Rogers because of his seminal work in unconditional positive regard. And let me just say this. I realize that there are those 
proof texters. I wouldn't even call them biblical scholars. I call them proof texters who reduce everything secular psychology has said to psychobabble. I'm sorry, but I can't do that. I'm not that stupid, and I'm being very careful how I say that, but I'm not that stupid. I have studied psychology, and while I see the differences between a theological approach to the human condition and a psychological approach, I cannot deny the accurate observations of the human psyche that have been made by social science. Where I would part company is understanding the meaning of personhood, because we aren't self-made, we aren't self-actualized. But we certainly are made to be heard, to be seen, to be touched, and to be felt. And that can't happen in a vacuum. That has to happen in community. And Christ came to restore us to family and to put us back together again. And yes, he is a God who is very near because he's touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And one of the things that Christ does well is listen. He hears. And in his hearing, it is something about the fact that we know we are heard when we pray that affirms not only our personhood, it affirms our potential. And his spirit within us cries, Abba, Father, whereby the spirit through Christ, we get to participate with him in the endless affirmation and celebration of love that is the eternal dance between the Father and the Son by the Spirit himself. And the Spirit brings us into that eternal endless exchange of love and affirmation so that we can answer the question, where do we go from here? We go into the arms of a loving Father through the grace of a given Savior by the power of the gift of the Holy Spirit himself so that we can ultimately experience and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In other words, I may never be a concert pianist, but I sure love to play the piano. And I can continually hone and sharpen my skills, even after all the 40-some-odd years I've been playing and practicing and studying the keyboard. I will never be um, a Vladimir Horowitz. I will never be a Peter Nero. But I can enjoy to my potential as an act of worship the giving back to God of this ability to dance on the keys of the ivories. There are things that you can see actualized in your life because of God's presence in you that would never be actualized by your own effort. You may achieve some things by your own effort, but your full actualization of your true potential can never be realized 
as long as there are areas in your heart where sin and brokenness continue to beleaguer your ability to move forward. Only a Savior and His indwelling Spirit can progressively bring us into the perfect influence of freedom. Because in those areas, I need His help to be free to choose life instead of death. Because there are all sorts of areas of brokenness that he has already transformed into beauty in my life. And yet there are other areas I'm still being healed where I choose the more deathly side and less than my full potential side. And I don't get actualized in my potential. I get reinforced in my limited expectations and my repeated past instead of my intended future. And so Peter Cetera wrote a song in my generation that raised an existential question. Where do we go from here? And it's true. The longer we live, every day just gets a little shorter, don't you think? And yet, though our outer person is getting older, our inner person is getting younger all the time, if we abide in the one who truly makes us free and the one who truly, truly, who is the light of the world, says to us, you are the light of the world. And the path of the just is as a shining light, shining more and more and more until the dawning of the perfect day. If that is an unconditional positive regard, if that isn't, I see you, I feel you, I'm touched by your infirmities, and I'm healing you. If that isn't the quintessential wonderful counselor, the therapist, and the one who actualizes our potential as the mentor of our dreams, then I don't know who is. But I do know he is the one who answers, where do we go? from here. Until next time, nothing missing, nothing broken. The absence of all things harmful, the presence of all things beneficial, is alone found in the one who is the Prince of Shalom, Christ himself. God bless.